Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging each to the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it. One on the right side of the bowl and one on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. In other words, he'll be leveled. And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The Jewish people are hearing this for the first time. And they're just like Zechariah going, okay, what is the message? What is the message? Let's get the picture first. For you who are not Jewish, you will not understand the picture fully, completely. But there is a picture here that is trying to be drawn by the writer, by Zechariah. By God, actually, because it's the Spirit of God who is in Zechariah helping him write this. And the picture here is of the lampstand of gold and the bowls and the lamps with seven spouts, but it's unlike completely thoroughly, without a doubt, any menorah that they had ever seen previously. If you've ever been in a synagogue, how many people have ever been in a synagogue? Okay, so some of you have. I have. You know there's a menorah there. You can see it. This is not like any of those menorahs. It's completely different. Obviously, if we extend the description to the end of this passage, which we're not going to have time, Okay, it was all the way down to verse 12. This menorah has features like no other menorah. The bowl is on the top. A menorah doesn't have a bowl on the top. Channels, conduits, seven lights, two olive trees. What in the world are two olive trees doing there? All these added features give it a uniqueness, and that's the reason for this. There's a uniqueness. There's a specialness that I hope to be able to explain. Olive trees keep the strange picture going. Why is there an olive tree on the right and olive trees on the left? But in the dialogue that Zechariah has or the angel has, and, and they're going back and forth, God's message is being given to God's people. They understand it because they're living it. You're not living it, but, but oh, you are. Oh, you are living it. We'll get there. Let's look at it. Let's start in verse 1. Give you a picture. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. You ever been in a, a deep contemplation? You know, just sort of sitting there and, and contemplating what uh, is going to happen in your life? Or Yeah, you've been there. You ever been in a daydream? 
And then somebody all of a sudden, and I don't mean when you're at work, folks. Okay? Somebody all of a sudden comes up on you and, oh, you're startled. So that's what the picture is here. He was in this deep contemplation because he sees this picture and he's awakened. These visions that uh, we've seen so far are given by God to encourage. What are they encouraging? Building of the wall. Building of the temple. That's what they're trying to encourage. They're wanting to see this work go on because without the temple, you cannot worship God, at least in their economy. And so the message here is to encourage them to build the wall, to build the temple. But the message here is going to change a little bit in direction. It's not going to forget about the building of the temple, but now the emphasis is going to be on something else. It's going to be on the work and it's going to be on the coming of the Messiah. He's going to bring, bring in this picture of the Messiah is coming. What do you think that's doing for these Jewish people? They just spent 70 years in captivity. And they're coming out of this captivity. And, and they're coming back to Jerusalem, which is utterly destroyed. And, and they're hearing this kind of message that the Messiah is going to come. Oh, about you, but every morning I wake up, I pray that the Messiah would return because I see such destruction in people and in families and all of that. I pray, God, come back. Come back. Even at lunch yesterday, we were talking about that. Zechariah has never seen such an intricate menorah, and he is wondering about its function and its purpose. Friend, Zechariah is a priest. <laughs> He'd be dealing with the menorah every single day of his life. He's supposed to take care of the menorah. But this one, ah, how, how is this? Why is this? You see, a, a priest would be going in morning and evening taking care of the menorah because they had to work on it. They'd enter the holy place and they'd care for the lampstand, replacing, trimming the wicks and replacing the oil because the oil is needed to keep the light burning. Yet, this particular menorah doesn't need anybody to care for it. There, there's no need to have somebody come in and change the wicks and change the light and change the oil and all of those kinds of things. Verse 2. And he said, <clears throat> excuse me. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, and its bowl on the top, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. The features here are unique to this vision. In the back of his mind, Zechariah is asking himself why. You know, whenever I come to a passage, and you've heard me say this before, I'm asking it questions. Why? Why do this? Why is it saying this? Why? I, I think the first time when I discovered, when it says going up to Jerusalem, I'm saying, but he's in the north, and he's going up to Jerusalem? How can that be going up to Jerusalem? You're going south. Well, when you get to Israel and you go up to Jerusalem, you go up whatever side you're coming, because it's a mountain. So Why? A bowl above the lampstand? 
I see and I behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bow on its top. Why? Being that the bowl is on top, folks, gravity has something to do with what's going on here. Gravity allows the oil to flow unhindered and keep the light on. They would not be able to exhaust the flow of oil. Second, there are seven lamps on it, and seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. This apparatus is to provide a steady supply of oil for the lamps and to keep the light on. It's supposed to be an encouragement to the Jewish people. The light hasn't gone out yet. And as we enter into darker days in the United States and in the world, the light is not out. Keep that light on. Keep that light on. This apparatus gives a steady flow of that oil, a never-ending flow of oil, creating light. In a sense, this is saying to Zechariah, you are no longer needed. You are no longer needed. You don't have to trim it because God's taking care of it. You don't have to supply the oil because God has taken care of that. Let's look at verse 3. Even more curious. Also two olive trees, one on the right side and one on the left side. Folks, the olive trees are there to provide the oil that goes into the bowl that's going to go down to the lamps, that's going to keep the light on. That's what they're there for. This bowl being on top supplies that oil that's needed. The olive trees supply the oil that's needed. The bowl at the top is the picture of an endless supply of oil running down those tunnels, those, few, those tubes, and they're funneling the oil to keep the lamps on. The presence of these trees is very important, is extremely important. So we're going to give you a little background of the trees. The trees are... are to fill up the bowl continuously with oil. When uh, we were there in Israel many years ago, the guide, um, well, actually it was even before we went with Randy, the, the guide was telling us that the trees that were in the Garden of Gethsemane probably could have been there when Jesus was there. And I went, huh? This is 2,000 years later. How in the world could that be? Well, do you know that olive trees can live for 1,000 years? Do you know that when you cut down an olive tree, that it can begin to grow again just from the roots? They are an incredible plant that you cannot get rid of. And so the picture of the olive tree, for the Jewish people, they're seeing this, and they're seeing an endless supply of this oil, continually supplying the oil to those who are to, to the lamps. Charles Feinberg said this. Charles Feinberg was uh, Pastor John's mentor when he was at uh, seminary at Talbot. And he said this, quote, the whole picture is intended to convey the thought of an unlimited supply which needed no human instrumentality for replenishing, as did the lampstands in the tabernacle and the temple. Why not? We're going to get there. In temple worship... The menorah needed continually to be attended to to be supplied with oil. 
Therefore, the picture is one of where Yahweh himself supplies the resources that are necessary, not just for the lampstand. He supplies the resources necessary for you to do ministry, for you to live, for you to walk with God. It's called grace. He continually supplies that to you, but so often we want to do it ourselves. God supplies what is necessary for the nation, is what's being said here, in order to rebuild the temple. The temple is not being rebuilt at this point, and God is saying through this message, I'm going to do it in spite of you. Now, just to go back to olive trees for a minute, when it comes to olive trees, the area of Palestine, that's one of the most famous products of the area of Palestine. Can regenerate without a problem. It can live for a thousand years, and it has great value in its oil. Now, remember, Zechariah the high priest is aghast. He's he's wondering, what is this vision for? And he says in verse four, he says, "As then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my lord?" Now, notice what he says there. These, it's plural. Interesting that he would use a plural word there. He's meaning all of the various elements that are in this menorah, not just the trees, the bowl, the oil. It's trickling down. The angel now is stunned. Remember, this is not God that he's speaking to. This, the angel is stunned by his response. And he says this in verse 5. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you know what these are? And Zachariah answers, no, my Lord. Have you ever had that kind of a situation where it's very obvious right in front of you and you say, I don't, I don't understand what's going on? What, what is God trying to do? What is God trying to do in my life? It's right in front of me, but I don't understand. Zachariah knew exactly what he was looking at. We know exactly what we're looking at. The challenge to live for him and not for ourselves comes every single stinking day. And that's what he's, it's being said here. Live for me. Follow me. However, he didn't know what the vision represented. He's still wondering about it. Friends, God through the angel is now going to explain what this vision is. He's going to now hit Zechariah right between the eyes with a two-by-four. And Zechariah is not going to be able to miss it. What is this vision representing? The vision is only a representation of something God is trying to tell the people of Israel. There is a spiritual message here. It's not just about oil and lamps and olive trees and those kinds of things. There is a spiritual and there's a physical portrayal here that God is trying to bring to them, and it really is in verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now the character is entered into the dialogue here. The angel uh, does not give Zechariah an explanation of the objects. Because the objects are really not that important. The significance of the objects are not important. It's what they represent. Friends, God is trying to communicate here. 
as he does throughout Scripture. He tries to communicate to us in different ways, and here he's communicating to the Jewish people, that there is a continual flow of oil. You don't have to worry. We heard that in the music just a few minutes ago. But what do we do? We worry. The light is always burning. God always has his light on. He always has a continual flow of grace towards you. But we don't look for it. We, we try to do things our way. We manipulate. We do other things. We worry. We complain. We gossip. The Holy Spirit is going about doing his work. I love when we went through Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is yelling at God and says, why aren't you doing anything? The Jewish people are about to be taken away to Babylon. That's what they're about to be done. They're about to be taken away to Babylon. He said, what are you doing, God? And God says, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. And guess what? Verse 5, he starts complaining again. And so God says, okay, I'm doing this. I'm going to take you away for 70 years and put you in Babylon. Oh, boy. That, that didn't seem to be an answer, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to the Jewish nation because it protected them from all of the fighting from the Egyptians and the, the Assyrians and all that were coming into that area. It was the best thing that could ever have been ha- could have happened to them. God had a plan. God has a plan for your life as well. 10, 12 years ago, Eki didn't know he'd go to seminary. 10, 12 years ago, uh, Alice didn't know that he was going to go to seminary. No. But God has a plan. And we need to enter into that plan. And we need to be open to that plan. Friends, what God is communicating here is a continuing flow of the grace of God. Now let's give you some background. <clears throat> I was going to pull the bus over for a little while and take a, a little bit of a look at the background. Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor of post-exilic Judah, are the leaders of the restoration. So you have, you have the one that's the, the priest, and you have one that is the, the governor. Um, he's got a few other titles around in the, in the scriptures. We'll get to that. He was appointed by the Persian king. Zerubbabel is in the line of the Messiah. So in actuality, he should be the king. But when they send him back to Jerusalem, they don't make him the king. They, they let him be the governor is what they call him, the governor. His lineage can be traced back to David. And therefore, he's in the messianic line. He is a man of importance. He was given the task by God to build the temple. This passage is telling us that the work of God in salvation and sanctification comes at a constant overflowing of grace, mercy, and power. This whole thing is representing the power of God through the Holy Spirit. There's a continual flow of oil. There's a continual flow of grace. This passage is telling us that the work of the rebuilding of the temple comes not with all the resources of David and Solomon, but by grace, by mercy, and the power of God. Zerubbabel is a pseudo-king. He's the governor. He's really a prince. He's a political leader of the Jewish nation. He's the leader of the restoration of the wall, of the temple, and of the city. He has been at this project now for 16 years. Almost sounds like California 
railroad. Been at it for 16 years. He's the leader here. He has all kinds of problems. He had political problems to contend with. He had low morale to contend with. He had a tremendous lack of resources as he came back to the city of Jerusalem. The people, when they came back, were more concerned with building their house than they were with building the temple. So it was about them personally. It wasn't about God. They didn't have him in their picture. An incomplete temple is frustration to the max. Viewing the ruins of the temple day in and day out, 16 years since returning to Jerusalem, has got to be discouraging. Has truly got to be overwhelming. Thoughts of never building the temple must be coming into his mind. Never worshiping Yahweh the right way is coming into his mind. Being attacked both physically and spiritually must be making him more and more depressed and the people more and more depressed. Have you ever had that kind of a day where you're attacked and and it doesn't bring you closer to God, but you seem to walk further away from God? You look at other things as your way of making you feel good instead of getting closer to the Lord. The vision tells Zechariah and the people that Zerubbabel is undertaking the work of the Lord. He has all the resources that he needs because God is going to get them for him. He's going to supply them. And so in the midst of this hopelessness, in the midst of this despair, God brings hope and optimism. It says here, not by might. That word there means the number of men rebuilding. It doesn't mean that you're, you're going to have to have a lot of men. Not by power the strength of those men, the acuity of their mind or whatever, it doesn't matter. It is only by the working of a mighty God that this work is going to be accomplished. You know, I think of the William Carey going to India. One man, one man went to India. He got on this boat, and, and, and the first time he went out of the harbor, he had to go back because it was such a bad storm. And then he finally goes out. By the way, his wife didn't go with him the first time. She went with him the second time. And they go down to India, and, and he starts this ministry of ministering to Indians in foreign languages. Do you know that he had the Bible translated into 30 different dialects in India? I've been in a, a taxi cab with Chris Williams, and he gave directions to the taxi cab driver to go somewhere, and the taxi cab driver said another language and another language. They had three languages. Chris used three languages, and they couldn't talk to one another. That's the kind of country he went into, and that's modern day. That's modern day. And that ministry took off. There's a college there, not that it's worth anything anymore, a, a church where they where they baptize people and put the language, put the Bible into 30 different languages. That's incredible. He didn't do it by his might. He didn't do it by the acuity of his mind. He did it by the Spirit. You see, folks, this might that's talking here is about military strength. They don't need it. Can I tell you this, and please take a note of this. 
you cannot affect change in your life without the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God needs to be giving you the power to change. You, you may say in your mind, I need to change. And you may say in your mind, I want to change. But unless you're going to getting closer to God, it's not going to change. It's going to stay the same thing over and over and over again. Your human strength, your human determination is quite insufficient to bring about the Lord's plan to completion. You need the, the promise that this oil represents, that it's a continuing grace of God in your life, giving you what you need to move forward. What uh, this passage is telling us, there's a promise of power. There's a promise of might because the Spirit of God is controlling the project. The Spirit of God is controlling that project. Not by power, says that the human resources are not enough. No matter how much brain power or how much you labor, it is insufficient. And you are distracting. You know, folks, I, I was thinking about doing something like that, but once I did that when I was at a camp, and it was a mouse went in a Coke can, and so I went over and I smashed the Coke can. I lost all the children. I mean, they were done. I mean, they didn't want to listen anymore. Were you there? No. I mean, he could have been there. I, and I, I mean, I lost them all, so I didn't want to lose you. So get back. Folks, you cannot affect God's will without God's power, without God's might. You may talk yourself into the mirror and say, hey, I want to do this. Yeah, that's human. That's not the Spirit of God. You need to get closer and closer and closer to Him to know His will. To be able to affect change in your life, you need to be walking in holiness. As it say in Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. And that's what you're to do daily. But you know, sometimes we, we, we skip those things and, and we move on in our life and we don't pay attention. God should be on our minds every single day, every single moment of that day. And that's what he's trying to say here. The salvation and the sanctification never come by your way. Yesterday, we were out to lunch, and, and I happened to look over at the lunch, and a guy's got an L.A. Dodger hat on. And on his shirt, it says, Godly. That's the fellow I talked to in the parking lot. So I'm walking by him, and I said, I like your shirt. Are you? And I said, how can you be if you have an L.A. Dodger hat on? I just <laughs> He and I got into conversation right there. I said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. So where, what, what's the shirt? And he says his friend's making a new line of wear or whatever. But I thought that was just neat to see this godly on a shirt, bring up a conversation. I wasn't out there witnessing. I wasn't passing out tracks or anything else. I had an opportunity. Take those opportunities. Take those opportunities. 
God affects those things. It's not our cleverness. It's not our ingenuity. These graces come only by God's gracious hand of mercy. Man's physical, mental, and moral power are insufficient for the task. And that's what the message is here. You are insufficient for the task. God is calling you to something greater, a relationship with him. Hosea 1.7, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to this. Hosea 1.7 says this, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. In other words, it's not going to be by your own strength. I'll do it when I want to. And if I don't want to, too bad. He's not a killjoy, folks. He's going to do it. But grow closer to him. I love 2 Corinthians. Paul speaking there. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Can you imagine? You need to be more weak to be more powerful. For grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I don't have to say, I'm strong and I got to show my strength. And I got to move forward and I got to be the power man here. No. Therefore, I will be content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does that look like? That means being humble. That means being able to say, I'm wrong. That means being able to say, I I need forgiveness. That's what it means. God gives you strength that way. God gives you strength that way. The positive aspect of this declaration is this, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Keep that in mind. Walking in the spirit, not grieving the spirit. By walking in the spirit. This means for us here in Anchored, any ministry, any minister, and a Christian advances in their relationship with God is always through his spirit even. I I remember hearing our pastor say, look, if if I didn't have the grace of God, I I would go sin multitudes of ways. I I would go off the rails. It's only by the grace of God. I've been here long enough to see many people go off the rails. The prophet Zechariah continues with this incredible picture. Now, Here's the beat that you need to hear. This is what you need to to see. This is the incredible power of God's might and power. Here in verse 7, it says, What are you, O great mountain? doesn't matter if you're the mountain we can't see right now. Okay. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. In other words, Zerubbabel is going to take a mountain. Could you imagine being in Jerusalem? And we've seen those mountains. To level it, to be a plain, to be flat. And he will bring forth the top stone and there will be shouts of grace, grace to it. The Jewish people are 
excited at what's going to happen. You see, when God enters the picture, mighty and monumental things begin to happen. In Ezra, which is a lead up to the understanding of Zechariah, but in Ezra, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of what they went through, um, the Jewish nation. If I went through all of the passages where they had trouble with the people of that area, we would be here for the rest of our time, not accomplishing what I need to accomplish. But in Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors. Wait a minute, aren't counselors good? (laughs) And hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's the impossible situation that Zechariah and Zerubbabel was facing. They're trying to rebuild this temple, and it's impossible. Israel was poor. They were few in number. They had multitudes of adversaries. They were attacking them. Many scholars see this mountain as a personification of the difficulties that Zerubbabel was facing in the building of the temple. The rebuilding of the temple will succeed only, only, by God's Spirit. God must stand behind any ministry that is going to do His work. God is the one who has to stand behind it. You know, there's lots of money that goes out for the Mormon church and for the Jehovah's Witnesses and all of that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem like the Christian church has as much. The Roman Catholic church has multitudes of millions and billions of dollars, but their work is going nowhere. They're going to hell. Psalm 33. Jot this down as well. But Psalm 33, verse 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. Did you hear that? The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Solomon, when he built the first temple, listen to this, had 200,000 men to build the temple. Seemingly, he had an endless budget. Zerubbabel, when he was building his temple, had 50,000 men, many of them distracted to build their own homes, many of them who were defending themselves against those who were attacking them in the area, and they had zero funds. One temple took seven years, the other one took 16. Therefore, when the capstone, the top stone is placed, the second temple, there is an astonishing grace sound, a shout of grace by the people of God, saying, this only came by grace. They know it. They realize it. You know, I've been here at Grace Community Church for 37, 38 years. 
And I look around, that building wasn't here, and all of the stuff that's been going on around the world, and we have these hundreds of, of missionaries coming in. We never had anything like that. All the work that's being done by God, not us. God is doing it. Yes, he's using us. These shouts of grace are exclaimed for Yahweh blesses his people with extraordinary favor. This is a complete affirmation of the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. Question is, what are you, O great mountain? Is there anything that can stand in the way of the Lord? No. I have people coming in with impossible situations. That's what they think. I said, well, God can take care of that. Yesterday, even somebody in the premarital said they have this impossible situation. No, you don't. Nothing's impossible with God. You've got to believe that, and you've got to start to live that. Is there anything that the Lord cannot overcome? Any, any, any mountain that he cannot level? I mean, who would think that somebody who wasn't even thinking about ministry would go into ministry and God would use them? No. Mighty mountain refers to something seemingly impossible. It's the quarrying and the shaping of stones taken from the uh, mountains around there that help with the rebuilding of the temple. God is basically declaring this, folks. This is what this verse means. No obstacle is too great for him. No mountain is too great for him. There is nothing that stands against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the almighty God that we serve. God has a divine plan, and you need to be, make sure that you're within that divine plan. How do you know that? When you sin, you ask for forgiveness. You reconcile with whomever you may have something against. You keep walking with the Lord and growing closer to him. Isaiah 46.10 says this, declaring the, the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, we don't always know what God's good pleasure is. I remember getting on that plane in India with five Muslims who just went down their prayer rug and thinking, oh my, we're going to blow up on the airplane. You know what? If that's God's pleasure, that's God's pleasure. Fine. I'm in heaven. I don't have to go through this. <laughs> Beloved, the specific message is that the temple will not be completed with human ingenuity or strength, but that it will be completed by the work of God. God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. It will never lack God's power. So you just heard this message. It's to post-exilic Israel, I understand that. But what, what does this mean to 21st century smartphone America? Really, what does it mean to 21st century smartphone America? Where, you know what, you can just call up Amazon and have a mountain delivered to you, you know? I got, they could probably do that in a, in a few weeks. What mountains are you facing, though, folks? I know you are. What mountains are you facing? What impossible life situations do you find yourself in the midst of? What pain? From the past, maybe? or maybe even currently, are you experiencing? What difficulties of relationship are you encountering today? What is your mountain? Is it a desire that God does not seem to grant you? Draw close to Him.
what is your mountain? A relationship with an unbelieving spouse? Draw close to him. And I counsel with folks, male and female, that are married to unbelievers. And I said, they need to see God in you. They need to see the Holy Spirit working in you. So that means you have an extraordinary situation here, but God can do it. I'll tell you this quick story. Maybe I've told it here before, but I was overseeing the counseling of a lady in the Midwest, and she was a pastor's wife, and she gave this assignment to this woman who had a husband who wanted nothing to do with God, who was really not a very nice guy. And she said, your assignment is to win him. Win him by your godliness. Win him by serving him. Win him by giving him whatever he wants, as long as it's legal, obviously. She did. And I'm into this about five weeks and six weeks, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to read the reports and talk to this counselor, and things are changing. So the man says, what's going on with you? Why are you different? What did... What happened to you? And she says, well, it's because of the church. And the church has, has said that I need to love you more. What church is this? I need to go there. See, folks, we, we, don't, we think so smallly about what God can do. We argue with ourselves. No, no, I need to give in. I'm not going to give in. I want to do it my way. Well, go ahead. What is your mountain? A job that is going nowhere? What is your mountain? Not enough money to survive? What is your mountain? Children who have rejected Christ. I was over here right after the elders' prayer time. I ran into a man who I've known for probably 37 years that I've been here. His son, who when we went to camp, used to discuss end times with me, is not walking with the Lord and hasn't walked with the Lord. And I asked him, how is he doing? He says, at least he's sober. At least he's sober. I know there are those kinds of pains in this class. What is your mountain? You find yourself depressed, inconsolable at times. What is your mountain? False accusations at work, false accusations at church. What is your mountain? Singleness. I don't like being single. I want to be married. I understand that. Get closer to the Lord. What is your mount, mountain? A besetting sin, something that you continually fall back into. We can go through this one after another, after another, after another, folks. What is your mountain? A life of laziness? What is your mountain? A life of anger? Do something about it. Don't let that mountain stay in your, in your life. Go to the Lord. Deal with it. So I ask, what's the solution? Well, obviously it's right here in the passage, not by might, not by power, but by thy spirit. Friends, it's all about your relationship to the king. That's what it is. I, and I can't, I can't do that for you. Pastor John preaches. We, we have all kinds of classes. We want to help you. We have counseling. We have all kinds of things. But you ultimately have to be the one to do it. I loved years ago, Dr. Smith said that uh, he was counseling with somebody and the person kept saying, well, I can't do it. And he says, well, 
I'd like to read my Bible. I really would. And it's a nice book and it's good things said in there. And, and, and you know what? I, I know that if I put on my glasses, because he had his glasses off, that if I get closer to it, I can, I can read it. That's what you have to do. You have to just do it. Just do it. Don't, don't think about it. Just go do it. Years ago, I was having trouble. And I came home and I, I said to my wife, I'm, I'm really not liking this. This is many, 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 many years ago. And she said to me, you know, as a dutiful, beautiful Christian woman would do, Psalm 37, 4, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, that's good counsel. Thank you. So I began to delight myself in the Lord. Oh my, I spent a whole week. I mean, I spent hours just reading and studying and all of that. And I came back and I said, so I've been doing it for a week and nothing's changed. And she says, you know what? That just revealed your selfish heart. And I said, you're right, it did. Folks, you don't do it to get something. If, if you do it to get something, you're not going to get it. That's not what it's about. You do it because that's what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Because you know what? He saved you from hell. He saved you from hell. I was reading this morning in Luke chapter 7. It says, those who have been forgiven much, and you have been forgiven much. Those are the ones that the King of kings and the Lord of lords loves. And he gives them a place. And he gives them a ministry. And he allows them to continue to grow. And that's what we need every, every day. Friends, we love you. That's why the elders came up with this plan, to meet with you, to talk with you. We care about your souls. We also, on the other end, which I always like to include in it, is Hebrews 13, 17. I'm going to give an account for you, and I don't even know all of your names. But I take it as a responsibility. Because that's what God has called us to. And the only way to conquer that mountain is by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the music. It was so wonderful. For the two men that we're sending out, what a God blessing that they have been to us. I pray for Daniel. We'd use him there in Texas. I pray for Eki as you use him in Brawley and, and for their wives. Lord God, it is so important for us that our relationships with each other are blessed by God, that they are walking in the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person here that we are growing closer to the Lord moment by moment, day by day. We pray this in your name. Amen.